Colossians chapter 4 has within it, as we've been noticing, a number of commendations. Things that were said by the Apostle Paul about certain men. He is giving credit where credit is due. And he tells us about such people as Tychicus, who it is believed was one of the bearers of this letter. Onesimus, who had been a profligate, wicked sinner, a thief, a criminal, a runaway slave, who could be described now as a faithful and beloved brother, who was one of them. He had joined the church at Colossae. Aristarchus, Marcus, who's better known as John Mark, or Mark, the author of the gospel that bears his name. And others are mentioned here. Paul is speaking about them, sometimes in glowing terms, because of what they represented as Christians, how they lived for the Lord, how they served the Lord. And it's always important for us to realize that when we look at commendations that are given about men, uh, that these things don't stand on their own. It's not that we're trying to give credit to people for what they were, pat them on the back and say, what a good boy you are. But what we see here is the grace of God at work in these people. That's why it's important when you look at biographical material in the Scripture to understand this, that whenever men did great things for God, it was because of God's grace. Paul wrote to one of the churches and said that it was of God, or it was God that worketh in you, both to will and to do of his good pleasure. If you sin against the Lord, that's on you. If you serve the Lord, that's because of God's grace in your life. The Lord enabled you to serve him in faithfulness. Now, as examples of faithfulness in God's service, Paul has obviously mentioned a number of individuals, and we have noted some of these. We talked recently about the messenger, we talked about the member, and we also referred to the missionaries. The next one they have singled out for special recognition, for special mention, is one who has already been mentioned in the epistle, and that is a man called Epaphras. Look at verse 12 of chapter 4. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you. Now, if you go back in your Bible to the first chapter, you'll see that he's mentioned in that chapter. He talks about the gospel that came to them. And verse 7 as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. It would not be an overstatement of the case to refer to this man as a mighty man of God. He is commended as such in these opening verses of Coloss of Colossae, of the, the epistle to the Colossians. Paul is giving thanks to God, verse 3 of chapter 1, not only for the Colossians themselves, but for the message, the word of the truth of the gospel, which they had received, verse 5, but which, he says, is come unto you, 
And you heard it, or you learned of it, from Epaphras, our dear fellow servant. He was a mighty man of God. And in chapter 4 and verses 12 and 13, he comes back to speak of this man again. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ, saluteth you, always laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. For I bear him record that he hath a great zeal for you and them that are in Laodicea and them in Hierapolis. Paul had the highest commendation for this individual who, like Onesimus, is described, you will see, as one of you. He uses that term in verse 9 of Onesimus, who is one of you. But here's it again in verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you. In other words, he's from Colossae, but he's a member of your church. He's part of the work there. A Colossian believer, and I want to commend his work, is basically what Paul is saying. Now, it would seem that Epaphras had come from Colossae, to visit the Apostle Paul in prison and to tell him all about the conditions that existed in Colossae and to tell him about the threat that existed from false teachers and so on, which called forth this letter. Epaphras, the mighty man of God, I want to speak about under several headings. And they're all in this passage. He was, as I've already indicated from chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, a mighty man in preaching. Let's rehearse what he says in chapter 1 from verse 6. Speaking about the word of the truth of the gospel, he says, which is come unto you. The gospel had come to them, as it is in all the world, that's all the Roman world, and bringeth forth fruit. It has worked. The gospel has produced something in Colossae. As it doth also in you since the day ye heard of it and knew the grace of God in truth, as ye also learned of Epaphras, our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. He was, in the first instance, a mighty man in preaching. He was a faithful gospel preacher. I suppose there are many things that could combine to make a person to be rightly described as a faithful minister. That's the word that Paul uses there in verse 7, a faithful minister of Christ. You know, there are so many unfaithful ministers. There are men, and Jeremiah speaks of them, as those who ran, but they were not sent. There are men who are described in various of the prophets as false prophets. Jeremiah talked about them. Ezekiel talked about them. False prophets. They're still with us today. Men who preach another gospel. Men who are not in any way to be described as faithful ministers of Christ. There are many of them in pulpits today in America and elsewhere. 
Now in chapter 1 we learn from verses 5 and 6 that the word that they heard was the word of the truth of the gospel. Epaphras was a man who declared truth. And that's what a faithful minister does. He doesn't preach what's popular necessarily. He doesn't preach what people want to hear. He preaches the truth. He preaches what they need to hear. Now in another scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul was very careful to describe faithfulness in ministry. Look with me at that passage, 1 Timothy chapter 4. And he says in verse 6 to young Timothy, If thou put the brethren in remembrance of these things, thou shalt be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished up in the words of faith and of good doctrine, whereunto thou hast attained. So we have to ask the question, what are these things that he was to put the brethren in remembrance of? Well, that which came before. And what Paul talks about to Timothy in these verses, from verse 1 of 1 Timothy chapter 4, is the influence of apostasy and those who preach another gospel. He says, now, the Spirit speaketh expressly, that means plainly, that in the latter times some shall depart from the faith. That's from what we get the word apostasy. Because that's what apostasy is, departure from the faith. Giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils or doctrines of demons. That's strong language. Paul is accusing these men of preaching and giving heed to devilish teachings. What are they? Well, he goes on to speak of them in verse 2 about these men speaking lies in hypocrisy. They're hypocrites and they're liars in the pulpits. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You know what happens to that part of an animal that gets branded with a hot iron? It loses all feeling. They do this out west with cattle, with steers. You'll see them with a big red-hot iron right on the back end of the animal. And they brand the animal. That part of the animal is branded with that hot iron. When you poke it with a pin or anything, it doesn't feel it. Because all the nerve endings have been damaged by the heat, by the red-hot iron. This is what Paul's talking about here. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. They don't have a conscience. Their conscience is dead. They're incapable of feeling anything in their conscience. That's what that means. Having their conscience seared with a hot iron. You say, are there ministers like that? Yes, there are. There are. Unscrupulous men. But he goes on to tell us what kind of things they teach. Forbidding to marry. Now, of course, he's referring in this instance particularly and specifically to the Jewish practice of celibacy. But it applies, does it not, to the Church of Rome? Because that's a doctrine of devils. That is a doctrine of demons. Forbidding to marry. Now, if someone gets married or doesn't get married, that's up to them. But that's a free choice. 
But to tell men, and indeed women who become nuns, and who give themselves to the orders of the church, that you cannot get married. You're not allowed to be married. That's a doctrine of devils. And has produced all manner of wickedness. It's left a trail of disaster in its wake, that particular doctrine. And commanding to abstain from meats. Special fast days. You're not allowed to eat this food, not allowed to eat that food. When I was a kid in school, even though our school was largely a Protestant school, because Catholics had their parochial schools, just because there were a few that might be Roman Catholics that came to the school, we didn't get meat on Friday for school dinners. Your guts. I was going to use a word there which I will not use. People in Ulster would understand what I meant by it. But a particular type of steaks, we called them fish. Fish. Not meat, fish. Why? Because the Church of Rome said you can't eat meat on Friday. That's a doctrine of devils. When people start making a religion out of food, that is a doctrine of devils. Now you can be a vegetarian if you want to, but don't tell me that in order to be a good Christian, I have to be a vegetarian. That is not scriptural. It is not right. Doctrines of devils. Abstaining from meats, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. For every creature of God is good and nothing to be refused if it be received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God and prayer. And that's my motto when it comes to food. I'm a First Timothy chapter 4 man. Paul says, if you put the brethren in remembrance of these things, you'll be a good minister. Now, not just these things, but these are the kinds of things that you're supposed to remind God's people of. Epaphras was a good minister. And furthermore, Paul referred to him as a servant of Christ. See this in chapter 4, verse 12. Colossians 4, verse 12. Epaphras who is one of you, a servant of Christ. We've seen that word before. It's the word doulos in the Greek. It literally means bond slave. We see this also used in Philemon in verse 23. If I might just turn there. There salute thee, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus. Probably the fact that he's mentioned as a prisoner refers to a voluntary action on his part. In other words, Epaphras hadn't done anything wrong. There's no reason for him to be in jail. But he accepted this voluntary confinement to be with Paul. In order there might be a help to Paul, he lived with him in the jail. He was a faithful servant. That's the word that's used in chapter 1 and verse 7. This is what the Lord wants you to be and wants me to be. A faithful servant. A faithful minister. But of course, the word minister often refers to service. 
Are we faithful ministers? Are we faithful servants of the Lord? Not only was he a faithful servant, however, he was a fellow servant. Chapter 1, verse 7 makes that clear. Our dear fellow servant, who is for you a faithful minister of Christ. Paul used the word doulos in the spiritual sense only of himself and of Timothy and of Epaphras. Those are the only three men who ever used this term of. You'll find it in Romans 1 verse 1 where he's talking about himself. In Philippians 1 verse 1 where he's talking about Timothy. And here in Colossians he's speaking about Epaphras. The commentator William Hendrickson said, A servant of Jesus Christ is one who has been bought with a price and is therefore owned by his master. He is one on whom he is completely dependent, to whom he owes undivided allegiance, and to whom he ministers with gladness of heart, in newness of spirit, and in the enjoyment of perfect freedom, receiving from him a glorious reward. So every true Christian is, in a sense, such a servant. We're owned by our master. We can't dictate to God what it is that we should or shouldn't do. That's up to him. He owns us. We're completely dependent on him. We owe him undivided allegiance. We're to minister as unto him with gladness of heart and in newness of spirit. And of course, we will receive from our master a glorious reward. Look at Colossians 3 verse 24. Knowing that of the Lord, ye shall receive the reward of the inheritance, for ye serve the Lord Christ. In other words, you're a bond slave of Jesus. This is Epaphras, a faithful servant, a fellow servant. But also, as a mighty preacher of the word, he was a fruitful servant. God used him. The Colossians, many of them, could thank God for the day they ever heard the gospel at the lips of Epaphras. Because as we read in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, it was this gospel something that came to them, and it brought forth fruit. They knew the grace of God in truth because they had learned it of Epaphras, who was for them a faithful minister of Christ. It is believed that Epaphras founded the church at Colossae. That is under God. We know the Lord began the work. But he was the instrument that God used. And we know that the Lord builds his church, but he uses men to do it. The church is not just going to get built without men. And this is why we need to pray for laborers. We need to pray for ministers. We need to pray for men to be raised up to preach the glorious gospel. So that there might be people out there on the foreign field or here at home who will thank God for the day that a faithful minister came their way and led them to Christ. Epaphras was a church planter involved in presenting Christ to those several towns of the Lycus Valley. And they're mentioned those towns in chapter 4 and verse 13. Not only Colossae, but Laodicea and Hierapolis. They were a triumvirate of churches and cities in which he preached. 
The Lord used Epaphras as a church planter. May the Lord raise up men in our own churches to preach the word. You know, it is a constant need for the church to have new men coming online, as it were, for the ministry. If men are not being called to the ministry, then the church will grind to a halt. I say this just because I happen to have been told this recently, that this year is the first time in a long time, many years, that no young men have come forward for the ministry in the Ulster Presbytery. So in other words, the the guys that are training for the ministry right now, they will not be added to this year, come next month. Normally that's when there would be an intake of students. There are exactly zero men that have come forward for the ministry this year. Now that should set alarm bells ringing. In our own side of the water here in the North American Presbytery, we're not exactly coming down with numbers of men seeking to go into the ministry. There's one that I can think of right now who's under care of Presbytery who hopes to end up in the ministry. How we need to pray the Lord will touch the hearts of men. We need faithful servants. We need those who will be fruitful servants in ministry. Something else about Epaphras, he was a fervent servant. That rings quite well, doesn't it? He was a fervent servant. Chapter 4, verse 12. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers. You know, prayer is labor. Prayer is work. You may not think that prayer is work, but you should reevaluate your thinking about prayer because it is labor. And what Epaphras did was done with all his heart. You notice this, that he was always laboring fervently for the people of God in prayer. He did it with all his heart. May the Lord raise up such men today. A mighty man in preaching. But secondly, he was a mighty man of passion. And again, we refer to that word fervent or fervently in verse 12. And again, there's a reference here to great zeal in verse 13. Great zeal. Epaphras was a man who strived or who wrestled. There was great labor and toil. There was sweat. There was hard work from this man. Not digging ditches, not building bricks, but laboring in the ministry. And apparently he was a man who was full of the deepest concern for those congregations that had been planted by God through his faithful ministry. He cared for them. And it wasn't enough that churches had been established, but he wanted to continue to pray for the people in those churches. And so Paul says, He's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. He's praying that you'll stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. He has a great zeal for you and also the people who live in Laodicea and Hierapolis. He's a mighty man of passion. 
Paul said on one occasion that he carried on his own heart the care of all the churches. It was like a weight that he carried on his shoulders, the care of all the churches. He had an interest in what was going on in those congregations. And Epaphras was like that. And this is the concern of the true pastor. He really cares about the work of God. It's not just a job. It's not just punching a ticket or a card every week. It's not just putting in his time. It is that which consumes him. He cares about the church. And we notice this in Paul. Let's look at the following scriptures, just a couple of them. Romans chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Romans 1 from verse 9. He says, For God is my witness, the Lord knows this, whom I serve with my spirit in the gospel of his Son, that without ceasing I make mention of you always in my prayers, making request, if by any means, now at length, I might have a prosperous journey by the will of God to come unto you. For I long to see you, that I may impart unto you some spiritual gift, to the end ye may be established." Paul was so interested in the church at Rome, he wanted to visit them again, and he wanted to impart something to them by way of the teaching of the Word of God and instruction. He wanted to see them built up. He really cared about the work. And then when you go to the book of Philippians, you see what he said in chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1 from verse 3. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you. Every time he thought about that church, he thanked the Lord. Always in every prayer of mine for you all, making requests with joy for your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now. He appreciated that. Being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ, even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart. Inasmuch as both in my bonds, that's when he was in prison, and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye all are partakers of my grace. For God is my record. Again, he's appealing to the Lord in heaven. How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. How much Paul loved the people of God. He loved the church of God. He wanted to see the work of God making progress. You see, the man of God, like Epaphras, he'll be a man of passion. He has a keen sense of responsibility for those he has ministered to. And that was illustrated also in Paul's ministry at Thessalonica. Look with me at 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, from verse 7. He's talking about his ministry there in that place. He said, But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because you were dear unto us. For you remember, brethren, our labor and travail. For laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, 
how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that ye would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. Two things there that we notice about Paul, that he likens himself to a nurse who is gentle with her children, and a father with his children. Those are both great pictures that are used there. The nurse with a responsibility to look after the little ones under her care. The father with a responsibility to care for his children. Now Epaphras, I say, was a mighty man of passion because he was known for his zeal. Zeal. It was said of our Lord Jesus Christ that he was clad with zeal as a cloak. How zealous he was for the furtherance of the kingdom of God. But in one area, and we'll come to this, Epaphras was known for his zeal. It was in the place of prayer. You know, zeal is a much to be desired quality. Be zealous, therefore, and repent, God told that church in Revelation chapter 3. Zeal. Seems like many times there's little evidence of that in Christian circles. Zeal. Being stirred up. Being zealous in God's service. Now I know that there's such a thing as misplaced zeal. Spurgeon used to say that zeal was like fire or flames. It's good in the hearth. It's very bad in the thatch. There can be misplaced zeal where people might think they're doing the work of God but the way in which they're doing it is actually harmful to the Lord's work. But oh how we need zeal. How we need the Lord to stir us up to be zealous in God's service that our heart might be in it. The Bible tells us that it's a good thing. It's a good thing to have zeal. Look at Galatians chapter 4 verse 18. But it is good to be zealously affected always in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you. It says it's good. It's good to be zealously affected when it comes to doing good. How little passion there is about us sometimes. I'm always struck by the contrast in this regard with the world, the worldlings. And the foolish things that they get excited about. My pastor used to say. A round leather ball filled with air. It gets booted between two posts and a crossbar into a net. And people go berserk. They lose their minds. Same with any sport. Somebody makes a putt in golf. Somebody makes a field goal in football or a touchdown. They go berserk. They go nuts. Somebody hits a home run or a bunch of home runs. They go crazy. They get excited about what essentially is nothing at the end of the day. What does it matter? Next year it'll be all forgotten about who won the World Series two years ago. Oh, let me see. Uh, I don't remember. It's all about now. 
It's all about right now. You'll see this with sports stars. Big names. Through through the years, through the decades, they become unknown. You think about some of those who were really big stars in our fathers and our grandfathers' day. Today, nobody even knows who they are. Why? Because they're all interested in the present day stars. The ones that are now on the front pages or is it the back pages of the papers, whatever. Getting excited about nothing. How often people do that? They get all bent out of shape about what doesn't amount to a row of pins or a hill of beans. Now I don't try to suggest that we're to be filled with animal excitement about the things of God. It's a different thing altogether. But do we never get really excited about the things of God? We see somebody coming to the Lord. We see somebody who's going on with God who wasn't before. Or we hear about something happening in some place that's encouraging. Do we get excited about it? Again, remember the Lord himself, that he was clad with zeal as a cloak. Zeal. A man of great passion. But there's a third thing about Epaphras that we should notice here. He not only was a mighty man of God in preaching and a mighty man of passion, but most significantly, he was a mighty man in prayer. Mighty man in prayer. How much emphasis is given in seminaries and Bible preaching institutions to homiletics, the art of preaching, hermeneutics, how to study the Bible, how to get from the Scripture to the text to the pulpit. But what about prayer? You know, prayer is not something that you can be taught. You can't be taught prayer from a textbook. You can't be taught to be a man of God by sitting in classes and learning to be a man of prayer. What was the secret of the success of Epaphras' work? Colossians 4 verse 12 provides the answer. Always laboring fervently for you in prayers that you may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Laboring fervently for you in prayers. Paul says, Epaphras sends his regards to you all. He's asking about you all. But far more than this and far more important than this, he is agonizing for you in constant fervent prayer. He's always praying for you. How did Paul know that? Epaphras who's always laboring fervently for you in prayers. Paul was sharing a prison cell with him. Paul was right there with him. Paul learned at first hand, here's a man who's so concerned about the work of God, he prays all the time for it. Constantly engaged in prayer. You'll notice that his praying was unselfish and it was unceasing. You look at that phrase, laboring fervently. It could be translated in the Greek language, agonizing or striving. Agonizing or striving in prayer. It's one Greek word. 
laboring fervently. It's only one Greek word. And you go back to chapter 1, verse 29, and Paul says, Whereunto I also labor, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. That word striving, it's the same word. And you'll find Paul referring to the same type of thing in his own ministry in Romans chapter 15, verse 30, and in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 11. Let's look at these two verses. Romans chapter 15, verse 30. Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me. It's the same word, agonizomai, the word from which we get agonize. He said, I'm, I'm begging with you that you will agonize together with me in your prayers to God for me. Join me in this activity, laboring fervently. And then, of course, there's 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 11. Ye also helping together by prayer for us. Pastor, how can I help? Ye also helping together by prayer for us, that for the gift bestowed upon us by the means of many persons, thanks may be given to by many on our behalf. Ye also helping together by prayer. What use is prayer? What good is it to pray? Paul shows us here that to be a mighty man in prayer is to be a mighty man. Epaphras was especially noted by Paul as a prayer warrior and not just as a preacher. I'm always struck by the form of words in Acts chapter 6 when it came to discussing the deacons there. There was a situation that arose in the church and there was a kind of a, an argument about the dispensing of food to the widows and so they chose out men that would deal with this daily distribution of goods and food they chose these men out and you notice what was said in verse 2 onwards the twelve, that's the apostles called the multitude of the disciples under them and said it is not reason that we should leave the word of God and serve tables, that's not our main responsibility is to be feeding the widows. That has to be done, yes, but that's not our main work. Wherefore, brethren, look you out among you seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. There's other men to do this work. They're to be set apart for that work, that practical work. But, verse 4, look at it, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. I guarantee you, if most preachers had been left to write that, the order would have been inverted, wouldn't it? In other words, they would have written, we will give ourselves continually to the ministry of the Word and to prayer. You know, we have to preach and then pray over the preaching. But the order here is really significant. The order here is important. And every preacher who's worth his salt would do well to pay attention to it. We'll give ourselves continually to prayer, number one, and to the ministry of the Word. Because you see, you're not going to be able to minister the Word properly without prayer. 
One man said, don't try to preach to men for God unless you first talk to God for men. Oh, so often we grow tired of praying. But do we ever grow tired through praying? It is the desire of many men, I think, to be great preachers. How many have a desire to be great prayer warriors? David Brainerd, who was a missionary to the Indians, right in this area, at the Forks of Delaware. He was noted for his preaching, yes. God used his preaching in a mighty way, but you know what you think about when you think about Brainerd? First first and foremost, his praying. David Brainerd, it was said, was so burdened for the Indians among whom he tried to work that he got off his horse and he knelt in the snow, right here in Pennsylvania, he knelt in the snow, and around him the snow melted. Such was his fervency in prayer. David Brenner suffered from what we would call today tuberculosis, consumption. He used to cough up blood. And they said they could follow the trail where Brenner had been by the blood on the trail where he had spat it out as he was going along on his horse. Wasn't a well man, died young. But the thing that you think about when you think about David Brenner is his prayer life. There was a minister in the town of Ayr in Scotland by the name of John Welsh. He was a relative of John Knox. It was said of John Welsh that many's a night he would waken in the night. And he would put a shawl around him and he would head down to his very cold, freezing church building. And there with that shawl around him he would plead with God for the souls of that area. And for his congregation. It was said of Robert Murray McShane. By a caretaker. A custodian of the church there. At St Peter's. When someone visited. And asked this custodian. What do you think was the secret. Of Mr McShane's ministry. The man said come with me. He took him into a side room. And he said now. Kneel down there. And start crying out to God with bitter tears for the souls of Dundee and the people in St. Peter's Church. Because that's the secret of Mr. McShane's ministry. There was a man in India called John Hyde. Hardly anybody knows him as John Hyde. He's known as Praying Hyde. Because that was what he did more than anything else you know it was said of James the one who wrote the epistle of James that people called him camel knees the reason he was called camel knees is because he had big calluses on his knees because of kneeling in prayer before God for hours on end camel knees Are those the kinds of men that ministers want to emulate? Men with a ministry of intercession? We've talked about men like Brainerd and John Welsh and 
praying hiding, Robert Murray McShane. But when we think of a ministry of intercession, we could go no further and need to go no further than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Because when we talk about agonizing in prayer, we think immediately of him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And there the Bible says he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Luke chapter 22, verse 44. Oh, our Lord knew what it was to agonize in prayer. By the way, the the word for laboring fervently is employed on six other occasions in the New Testament. Three times it's translated as strive, and three times it's translated as fight. You know, it's a battle when you pray. It's a battle. You have to battle against your own flesh. You have to battle against the clarion calls that come from elsewhere. You know what it's like. You'd rather do a hundred other things as take time out and spend time in prayer before the Lord. That's because you're fighting the flesh. It's a battle. But it's worth it. Epaphras learned to strive, to fight, to agonize at the throne of grace. He expended great efforts in prayer. And all that we would know something of that in our experience. The Bible says, and with this I'll finish, 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 17, pray without ceasing. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean you go someplace and lock yourself up and just you never do anything else but have your head bowed and you pray? That's not what it means, pray without ceasing. You couldn't live like that. You have to do your daily work. You have to do your other chores. You have to have other things that you're involved in doing just to live in this world. So pray without ceasing must mean something else. Surely it means to continue in prayer and don't give up, don't quit. We're such quitters, aren't we, when it comes to praying? There's things that we're praying for and we just, somehow we just give up. But we must continue in prayer. Pray without ceasing. It means to be also in a constant spirit of prayer. I think it was Spurgeon who said, I hardly ever prayed for more than 15 minutes at a time. But I hardly went 15 minutes without praying. That's praying without ceasing. Being in the attitude of prayer. As you're in the Lord's presence all the time. You're talking with him. You're communing with him. You're shooting little prayers up to the Lord. Pray without ceasing. Pray until the answers come. That might be a long time. That might be a very long time. But doesn't God promise to answer prayer? We shouldn't pray if we don't believe that God's going to answer prayer. He's given us his promises. And I know that Epaphras was a man who leaned upon the promises of God. And as he prayed for the Colossian church and the the ones in Hierapolis and the ones in Laodicea, he prayed for them fervently. He prayed for them persistently. He prayed for them all the time. He prayed for them with great Exertion, great labor. May the Lord help us not just, as the little chorus puts it, to say our prayers, 
I often say my prayers. But do I really pray? And do the desires of my heart ascend with